Good evening, everyone. My name is Philip Craig. I'm honored to serve as rector here of St. James Parish on behalf of the St. James Speakers Series Committee. Indeed, all of us in the St. James Parish family, I welcome you this evening to a very special occasion as Westminster Abbey comes to Wilmington. Some of you may know already that St. James was founded in the year 1729. We're kind of excited that we're going to be celebrating our 300th anniversary in the year 2029. So stay tuned for more information about that. However, I'm sure that the two gentlemen behind me are winking at each other as I brag about 300 years of life because I looked up on the internet today, and I know it must be true because it was on the internet, gentlemen, that um, it's likely that your office keys or a piece of furniture in your office are probably centuries older than even St. James Parish. We're um, indebted by your time this evening, Jamie and Martin, thank you for being here. We're looking forward to all that you have to say, and let us begin with gratitude and with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Gracious God, for your providential care in bringing us safely to this evening, and for your presence right here in our midst, we give you thanks. We pray that tonight might be a tangible reminder of the manner by which we are bound together, for the experience of knowing that we belong to all the ages, for the gift of thoughtful prayer that you have taught us, for the task of reverent study to which you call us. We ask a special measure of your grace on Jamie and Martin as they share their stories, their wisdom, and their friendship with us. We thank you for the love of worship you stir up in our hearts and for the love of justice you implant in our wills. Remind us that you are with us in times of trouble as in times of joy. Nurture in us thankful hearts when we stand together. And finally, inspire us with prophetic vision so that our fellowship may bear the likeness of the incoming kingdom, indeed, the good news proclaimed for all by Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. May I invite you now as we move to our presentation to please turn off those cell phone ringers and please enjoy your evening. I welcome you to Westminster Abbey in Wilmington. Canon Hockey. Thank you, Philip, very much. Thank you, Philip, very much indeed. And thank you, friends, for the extraordinary warmth of your welcome uh, to Martin and me over these last days. Um, uh, before I uh, begin, many of you will have heard on the news this evening that um, King Charles, our beloved king, um, has been diagnosed with cancer and is under treatment. And if you're a person of faith, I wonder whether you might just join me in a few seconds of silent prayer for the king, for his health and for his healing. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. So this evening, Martin and I are going to talk to you under the title of Westminster Abbey, Past, Present and Future. We're going to share a bit of the history of this extraordinary place, uh, talk a bit about the building, uh, its faith, its art, its life, it, its current existence. And we're going to take you effectively on a mini tour in different ways. This is... Um, one of the best-known views in Europe, I guess. And it looks pretty set, doesn't it? It looks pretty settled. But Westminster is a tablet, if you like, on which much has been written, erased, and rewritten. We know that the Romans settled on a very marshy spot called Thorny Island in the middle of the Thames as early as the beginning of the 3rd century. And there's clear archaeological evidence of settled existence on this site, um, which exists in the form of a Roman sarcophagus, which is actually in the Diamond Jubilee galleries in Westminster Abbey, which show that there was settled life here during Roman times. But as ever, when thinking about origins, beginnings, legend is at least as important as history. One legend tells of the destruction of a Roman temple to Apollo by an earthquake, and in its place, the local king building the first church around the year 170. 
Another legend says that early in the 7th century, the son of a Saxon king was converted to Christianity by the first bishop of London, St. Melitus, who refounded this church. Of course, these myths chime rather nicely with other accounts of Christian origins around Europe. So what do we know for sure? Well, a key period in the life of Westminster was around the year 957, 957, when there was major religious renewal under a king called King Edgar. That's when England as a kingdom was formally established. And we know that monastic life in Westminster certainly begins now. St. Dunstan, whom some of you will know, who was Archbishop of Canterbury, Bishop of London, he brought some monks up from Glastonbury, his abbey in Somerset, to settle or possibly resettle monastic life in Westminster. But what really clinched it, the major place in the nation's mind, in its moral, political, and spiritual psyche, was King Edward the Confessor's desire to build a great minster church opposite his palace, the palace which is on the site of what we now call the Houses of Parliament. Now, King Edward had been crowned in Winchester, but in consolidating his rule, he established his court in London. And this building, the site of Westminster Abbey, has been a pole of orientation for London ever since. When Edward the Confessor built his first minster here in the West, the Westminster, London already had another great minster in the east, the Cathedral Church of St. Paul, St. Paul's Cathedral. So by dedicating the Westminster to St. Peter, St. Edward the Confessor poised his capital and its people between the two great princes of the church, Peter and Paul, placing the life of London, the life of England, under the light of that church's teaching and witness. This London, emerging around the River Thames, was to be no secular city, but a community shaped by Christian faith and hope and love. And the Abbey's continued presence at the heart of national life is a kind of twitch upon London's thread, tugging it back to its foundation. Rome was the best-known city of Peter and Paul, and it was to Rome that Edward the Confessor had initially vowed to go on pilgrimage earlier in his life. But when King Canute died in 1042 and the confessor's life changed forever, the Pope dispensed him from the vow as long as he built a church to St. Peter on this spot. So Peter and Paul, the litmus test of a truly Christian city, and especially one which wanted to claim some kind of national jurisdiction. Edward the confessor died childless, and many of you will know the throne passed to his brother-in-law, Harold, who was overthrown by William the Conqueror, crowned here in Westminster on Christmas Day, 1066. St. Edward, whom you can see in the middle, was canonized by the Pope in 1161. His influence, his spirit, was as influential in death as it was in life. Yes, St. Peter and St. Paul in London, but... The new St. Edward offered a vernacular and English call to holiness, which neither apostle could really keep up with. St. Edward's shrine stands at right at the heart of Westminster Abbey. We still have his body. It is our greatest treasure. Now, the observant among you will notice this is not Westminster Abbey. <laughs> this is the cathedral in Chartres in France. And when you're going into Chartres Cathedral, as with so many medieval cathedrals, there's no question whose realm you're entering. Chartres is framed by images above the door, Christ in majesty, scenes from the life of Mary, the apostles, the signs of the zodiac. They remind us that as we enter consecrated ground, we're entering a kind of cosmic reality. In fact, when entering to celebrate the liturgy, we're in some ways entering heaven. But at Westminster Abbey, the great west door, the equivalent door, is framed not by these traditional medieval figures, but rather by statues of modern martyrs installed 26 years ago. This is a statement about the universality of the church 
as much as it is about modern multicultural London. So in entering this church, as in entering any liturgical space, you are entering heaven. And who are the saints? But the ones who teach us, who welcome, inspire, challenge, rebuke us. These figures tell us that they're the church. And those at Westminster Abbey are supremely from a mixture of ecclesial communions and backgrounds. Now, the ten above our door include, you can see them there, include victims for the struggle for human rights in North and South America. You can see Martin Luther King in the middle there. Victims of Nazi and Soviet persecutions, of dictatorial rule in Africa, of fanaticism in India. The list goes on. They were unveiled in July 1998, and they represent the most recent layer, if you like, of the Abbey in artistic terms. But they relate to the very deepest layer of the Christian faith. In the second century, the church father Tertullian said that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. So these statues are saying something about the church itself, as well as about the martyrs themselves. They're saying that the church, whilst ancient, is alive, contemporary, active. The statues, you can see them up close there, they're a great ecumenical gesture. But they're also a mark of our trust, our trust in the future when the church will be united. They're witnesses to that in the way that the building is a witness. The martyrs remind us of the persecuted church, but the sheer fact of this building witnesses to the centrality of Christian faith on Parliament Square at the center of British national life. The Abbey was here first, and around it have gathered Parliament, civil service, the Supreme Court, the list goes on. Despite the changes, positive as well as negative in national life over the centuries, the UK remains a Christian country where the church is established by law. So just before we go inside, in 1996, there was a, a memorial dedicated outside the door to all innocent victims of oppression, violence, and war. It's literally outside the camp. The unveiling of this stone was attended by victims of the Ugandan and Armenian genocides, victims of Burmese and Stalinist purges, a teacher from Dunblane Primary School in Scotland where there was a great massacre, a former inmate of Auschwitz and Belsen. This space allows for interfaith and non-religious remembrance as well, although the picture you can see here um, is of a commemoration of those Christians killed by ISIS in the Middle East. We've recently had several moments here to remember Ukraine, and we placed a single burnt lantern there as the hostage-taking and bombardment ensued in Israel and Gaza. But as one enters the Abbey, one increasingly becomes aware that one is somehow not alone. There are over 3,300 people buried or memorialized here. This is the burial of the unknown warrior, one of the most famous graves in the building. It's the only grave which is never walked over. We don't know who this man is in the grave. We don't know his name, his rank, his number. He might have been a soldier from the British Empire, not even from England. But he was given a state funeral with full royal and military honors. His coffin is made of English oak, felled at Hampton Court. It rests in French soil, and the marble slab on top is Belgian. This is an image of the First World War. The warrior's coffin has a crusader's sword strapped to it. There are layer upon layer upon layer of imagery here. Every time an overseas head of state comes to visit His Majesty the King, they come to this grave to lay a wreath and pray for peace. Here, art and memory come together to heal conflict. It was here at the centenary of the First World War, the end of the um, First World War in November 2018, that the Queen and the President of Germany shook hands and watched together as flowers were laid. 
There's an up-close of the grave, surrounded by its blood-red poppies. It very quickly became a focus for pilgrimage, gathering the memories of a generation destroyed by grief. Royal brides lay their bouquets here. That's a tradition which was begun by the late Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, when she was Lady Elizabeth Bowes Lyon. Her brother, Fergus, was killed in action at the age of 26. And since then, royal brides have left their bouquets here. Martin and I both remember the current Princess of Wales and the current Duchess of Sussex sending their bouquets to rest here after their marriage. But once you come past through the choir and enter the sanctuary, the sacrarium, you come face to face with one of the Abbey's most amazing artistic treasures. This is the Cosmati pavement in front of the altar. The stones that you can see here were brought from Rome in the 1260s by Richard de Ware, who was abbot of Westminster. And we know that Henry III, the king at the time, owed him the princely sum of 50 pounds. It was a lot of money in those days. Now, the abbot had been in Rome to have his election confirmed by the Pope. And that's probably where he saw this kind of pavement. It's made up of 30,000 pieces of marble and glass, and it's mostly recycled material. Just one example, the purple stone there you can see is Egyptian porphyry. Now, the porphyry mines of ancient Egypt ran dry in about the year 60 BC. So this is very ancient recycled material. The blue and the green is lapis lazuli, which is worth twice its weight in gold. This is a very costly pavement. So why? Well, firstly, of course, it's a site of the liturgy. It is, in one sense, the carpet of heaven. But it's also an astrological map of the universe, with the Earth, as they thought it, at the center, with the planets going around it, with the elements containing fire, air, water, Earth. But I mentioned that the abbot was in Rome when he got it. Cosmati, the design, is very disruptive as an artistic device in any context, but it's a particularly disruptive artistic element in a Gothic Norman church. So maybe this is an example of Westminster's Romanitas, its connection with Rome. Remember, Peter and Paul together. Because long before we were a royal peculiar, as we are now, answerable only to the sovereign, we were a papal peculiar. The abbot of Westminster only ever answered to the Pope, not to the Bishop of London, not to the Archbishop of Canterbury. And I mentioned at the beginning William the Conqueror coming to be crowned here on Christmas Day 1066. Well, that spot in the middle, which marks the place where St. Edward was first buried, that's where he put his throne. And it's on that spot that English and British sovereigns have been crowned ever since, including our own king, Charles III, on the 6th of May, 2023. But there are many different kinds of people buried in Westminster Abbey, and actually until the middle of the 18th century, you could pay to be buried there. So some of the greatest monuments are actually not to the great and the good, but rather to those um, who could fund their own burials. But there are, of course, some extraordinary ones as well. You can see here the memorial to the English composer Henry Purcell. Now, in the same way that St. Edward's Shrine gathers around it kings, Purcell gathers musicians. He was our organist and died in 1695. And around him are buried Vaughan Williams, Herbert Howells, Charles Villiers Stanford. There's a memorial to Benjamin Britten. Just behind that is the newest piece of art in the Abbey. This is the only stained glass in the world uh, designed by David Hockney. It was installed in 2018, uh, and it's a celebration of the reign of Queen Elizabeth II. And Hockney decided he wanted to celebrate Queen Elizabeth as a countrywoman. So you can see the trees and splashes of hawthorn, as Hockney himself said, exploding like champagne. But just the other side of the screen is the grave of Sir Isaac Newton, with all his achievements, including the solar system, if you look very, very carefully at the front, uh, which goes only as far as he thought it did. He got up to Saturn 
course, he didn't know anything was any further than that. Uh, it's by Michael Reisbrach, who was the greatest sculptor of his age. And Newton gathers around him scientists, including Charles Darwin, who was buried here in 1882. It's a source of great pride to the Dean and Chapter that our predecessors at that time didn't believe there was a fundamental conflict between science and religion, but rather wanted to mend things a bit. Also, and most recently, the ashes of Stephen Hawking are there. They were buried in the Abbey in 2018. Now, when our previous dean was interviewed by the BBC about this, on the fact that Hawking may well have died an atheist, the interviewer said, well, Mr. Dean, this is all very well, but Stephen Hawking did not believe in God. To which the then dean replied, like a flash, well, God believed in him. <laughs> and perhaps that is the underlying point of all of these memorials, all of these burials in Westminster Abbey, that it says something about the wisdom and love of God expressed in ordinary and extraordinary human lives. I'm going to hand you over to my marvelous colleague. Thank you. Um, I'm just going to uh, change gear a little bit, really. Uh, the Vergers team at the Abbey. Uh, first and foremost, the role of a verger is to serve but also to support the clergy in their liturgical and ceremonial role. There is a still a strong ministry and vocation for vergers within the church, both in cathedrals and in parish churches. And thank goodness it is still recognized as a ministry and a vocation. However, it is always recognized that the role of a verger for some is also a professional job. And as a friend of mine once advised, Find something to do and find something that you will really enjoy by helping others and then go and get paid for it. And I enjoy both. In our present time, we now have to work with challenging cultures. The way of life, its expectations and endless boundaries of safeguarding, trust, working terms, conditions and contracts, etc., and these areas, of course, are important, but should not distract from the ministry and the vocation of a verger. I am fortunate at the Abbey to have seven very talented and committed vergers, all with varied skills and knowledge. Each person has a designated chapel area to care for within the Abbey. And this can be anything from washing and ironing the daily linen, to setting out vast numbers of coats for major services, to the care of our 11th century Charles II coats and modern newly commissioned vestments, all overseen by the Dean's Verger as head of department. Every morning at 6.30 a.m., one of the vergers comes to the Abbey with a few other colleagues, and the Abbey is open for worship. The day begins with our cycle of morning prayer at 7.30, followed by 8 a.m. Holy Communion, in one of our side chapels, and this really is a beautiful time of the day. It's quiet, calm, and restful. One of the major things we as vergers need to be good at is preparation and an eye for detail. And if you see something wrong and or odd, then go and correct it. Easily done by making it look as if it's part of the ceremonial and then nobody would notice. It is important to be one step ahead of our clergy friends. Once the morning services are over and tidied up by, uh, uh, sorry, once the, um, the morning services are over and tidied up, the Abbey opens for visiting at 9.30 in the morning. Our vergers then, during the course of the day, have their varied duties, one of which is the verger guided tours for the general public. And this was set up by a former and well-established Dean's Verger of the 40s and the 50s, Mr. Algie Greaves. And he was present for Her Royal Highness Princess Elizabeth's wedding in 1947 and for her coronation in 1953. 
there is a story, and there's always a story, with vergers. He was standing at the west door of the abbey with the then dean, and Mr. Greaves looked up into the sky and saw an aeroplane passing by. He turned to the then dean and said, Mr. Dean, look, there's another 500 paying tourists on their way. <laughs> Today, Virgil guided tours are popular, lasting one hour and 30 minutes. In 2023, we took 9,600 people on tour. This is a perfect way of one-to-one -one interaction and telling of our story and being able to discover firsthand the daily life and worship of the Abbey. The daily cycle of prayer and challenges with tourism. Our visiting days are busy. At the height of the summer, we can and do hit 6,000 visitors a day. And most come to the Abbey to see its treasures, its famous burials, and its architectural wonders. On the hour, we have a very short prayer said by one of our many weekly residential duty chaplains, just to remind everybody we are a living, working church. We at the Abbey try very hard for tourists to be pilgrims, but it is so easy if we are not careful that pilgrims can become tourists. One of my best times, perhaps, after a very full and demanding day, attending meetings, endless emails, or having to deal with challenging situations, and having been surrounded by thousands upon thousands of visitors, is to be present for our daily Eden songs, sung by the Abbey Choir. And this is sung every day and throughout the year, except for Wednesday, because we give them the day off. Oh, sorry. Choral Evensong is one of the church's greatest gifts and treasures. This truly does reach the parts that others can't. I can bring all my thanks, worries, frustrations, and all other things to this one space and time. And from time to time, I do remind colleagues that even though we get visitors and tourists coming to Evensong and know little of its tradition, its style, or its meaning, they just want to be there because they're tourists and it's free, we never really know through the power of music and spoken word what they will take away with them. The balance between worship and tourism is a challenge. And I, for one, hope for them of a glimpse of the Holy Spirit. Music really does speak. There are also those moments when the Abbey is full of 2,000 people for a special royal service. Trumpets, choirs, organs, orchestras, VIPs, etc., etc. And every inch of the building is full of sound. But this can also be a moment for those in the congregation to be touched powerfully by the occasion they have come for. It is very, very uplifting and rewarding to witness. All of the above, of course, needs planning. This falls to our two minor canons who do absolute wonders with the liturgy in its creation. They do all this in their thoughtful, calm way. When they have put it all together and signed off by the dean, that's when it hits my desk to enable the Verges team to execute the preparation and the ceremonial duties. It's all in the planning and the detail. Oh, sorry. Not yet. The Abbey as a famous church and its expectations from others. Westminster Abbey is one of the most famous churches in the world. It ranks the top 10. We are in line, for example, with those at the Vatican at Rome, and St. Mark's Venice, and Notre Dame Paris, just to mention a few. The Abbey is the coronation church, the national church, and the home ceremonially for the Commonwealth. 
And this diverse service is held on the second Monday in March, and now, for the last five years, has become a live BBC televised service. The King and other members of the royal family join us in forces to strengthen and reaffirm publicly the Commonwealth family and message. And Canon Hawkey will talk on this a little more shortly. We are mindful of being a famous place of worship. And this can be immense, and the expectations are very high. And look, example, for the careful statement that had to be issued from our dean at the time of the death of the late Queen Elizabeth II. The wording had to be just right. What we do in our daily life and how we present ourselves in what we say by preaching and or in statements are taken onto the world stage. Here is a short video of the Commonwealth. As Martin said, the Commonwealth Day service is one of the great highlights of the year. It, it's an entirely bespoke occasion. Uh, it's, it's not like anything else that we do, even amidst our own sort of colourful liturgical life. There's always a theme which is chosen by the Commonwealth Secretariat, um, and there's always, each year, a chairperson in office. So the countries of the Commonwealth take it in turn, as it were, to, to hold the chair of the Commonwealth um, each year. And so a, a lot of the, um, if, if you like, acts that we see during the Commonwealth Day service are in some ways related to uh, the nationalities and cultures of the Commonwealth country, which is the chairperson office that year. It's also the largest multi-faith gathering in the UK. There's no doubt about that. Um, and very unusually, it includes leaders of other faiths alongside leaders of the Christian churches, offering prayers from their own tradition. Now, I should say this isn't a kind of syncretism. It's not um, everybody praying together, oh, it's all the same God, isn't it? Oh, it's all the same. It's actually people from their own tradition voicing prayers alongside one another. Um, but it does actually go beyond the Church of England's official guidelines for such things. Um, and this is something Western Abbey can do because it's a royal peculiar, 
because we're not under the authority of the Church of England, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Bishop of London. And I don't say that in any sort of pompous way. I just say it by way of explanation, that the Abbey has a particular vocation as the Church of the Commonwealth to in some way represent the lives of faith communities around the Commonwealth. And we think about this quite carefully. We hope we do it with real integrity, just allowing those of other religions and other traditions to voice their own prayers alongside our own. As Martin said, uh, His Majesty and his family come every year. The king is a, is a great proponent of the Commonwealth, and not least after the example of his late mother, working to promote what a sort of force for good uh, that organization might be around the world. That's probably enough from me on the Commonwealth Day. Obviously, we're happy to take questions on anything you like later on. Back to Martin. Royal services and visits. The most important function of the Abbey as a royal peculiar is to serve the sovereign and its family. This is part of our life and we do get used to it. We also host heads of states for visiting. Within the calendar year, we have a lot of large, high-profile services and events, all very different and demanding in their own way. To give an example, during the preparations for the coronation, which was totally fascinating to watch, and with every inch of the building having something being made or built or something happening in it, I was standing and waiting for a group meeting to begin in the nave. There was something, there was just something that I just could not put my own personal finger on. There, uh, I knew this was an absolute immense undertaking for all of us, and the viewing would be worldwide. One of the canons, of course, said, there is an air of normality about all of this. Yes, that is it, I thought. We do world national services, cameras, live television, royalty, heads of state, fanfares, trumpets, etc. And from there, I felt much more in tune with the preparations for the coronation service, the biggest service the Abbey would ever host. And again, Canon Hawkey will talk on this in a little while. In my 21 years at the Abbey and 40 years as a verger, I have been fortunate to be part of some amazing historic services and events, especially at the Abbey. Four state visits of the Presidents of the United States, Pope Benedict XVI, the royal wedding of the then Prince and Princess of Cambridge, 187 royal services to date, but then there are other solemn anniversaries or services of world and national interest which we host, and most recently, the state funeral of Queen Elizabeth II in September 22. And then, the most happiest of the time, the coronation of His Majesty King Charles III in May 23. Both different, of course, but what a moment of history to be there right in the heart of it all. The Abbey enables the world to be part of them, albeit on television. And visitors do come to the Abbey when they have seen us on television, sometimes in their thousands. And here is a short video of the coronation.
So just a few words about the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II and the coronation of King Charles. The Queen's funeral had been subject to years of planning, um, some of which I'd supervised whilst presenter of the Abbey until 2015. But nothing could have prepared us as a community for the extraordinary intensity of emotion around those days, mourning the loss of our nation's longest reigning sovereign and somebody loved right across the world. I will never forget the night of the 8th of September, 2022, when Martin, another two vergers, and I went into the Abbey, having heard the news of the Queen's death, and started to dress all the altars in black cloth, ready for the first requiem, which I then celebrated for the late Queen early the next morning. On the day of the funeral itself, there were so many emotions. I recall very vividly seeing the coffin approaching the Great West Door for the first time, with the lustrous diamonds of the imperial state crown exploding in fiery brightness on top of the coffin. I recall seeing friends who had been equerries to Her Late Majesty flanking the cortege, including those to whom I knew she had been personally kind and very nurturing as they recovered, in one case in particular, from the horrors of military service. I recall singing God Save the King for the first time in His Majesty's presence as his mother's coffin was still right in front of him. Equally unforgettable, but of course totally different in character, was the coronation of Elizabeth's son, our new beloved king, in May last year. The Abbey was transformed into yet another version of its best self, as Martin has already said, in a sense, just doing what we do, a service at once deeply traditional, whilst also engaging the reality in some ways of contemporary Britain. At the very beginning of the service, after their majesties had arrived in the Abbey's sacrarium, the first words of this service, this coronation, were spoken by a child, welcoming the king in the name of the king of kings. In one of the most profound innovations of the 2023 coronation, the king replied to this child, in Christ's name and after his example, I come not to be served, but to serve. Anyone who has spent time with the king and the many causes he cares so deeply about will have a sense of just how very true this is. Martin. COVID, an empty abbey and a monastic feeling. Amongst all the glamour of pomp, copes, crowns, orbs, scepters, with their truly sparkling, and I believe you me, they really do sparkle, of diamonds, rubies, emeralds, sapphires, of the coronation and other ceremonials, just for a moment, let's go back to and for a reality check, which we have journeyed through. In 2019 and 20, we had just hit a record number of paying visitors to the Abbey, 1.3 million people. We were planning our future and how we as an Abbey play our part locally, nationally, and further afield. Our new sacristy building was to be built on the north side of the Abbey, was developing in its plans. Our new girls' choir was to be formed, the first ever in the Abbey history. The world stopped. The pandemic came fast and furious. All of the staff were sent home until further notice. And little did we know that that would last almost over a year. The Abbey was closed for visiting. The loss of income, which is 100% generated by visitors. Public worship suspended, but as a royal peculiar, we, we were permitted by the then sovereign to continue our daily round of prayer, the three statutory services. 
morning prayer, holy communion, even though that was very difficult to do, and evening prayer. Keeping the cycle of prayer alive. Absolutely essential, not just for the Abbey, but for all those in need. The only people left in the Abbey were the residential community. The dean, the canons, the organist, the clerk of the works, the receiver general, two vergers, and a few house pets of dogs and cats. There I was in this historic place, empty with its thousands of years of history, poets, kings, queens, scientists, all lying in total silence. Emptiness, calmness, sadness, and death. But lingering through all of this was the air of prayer and hope. It suddenly took on the feeling of a monastic community. The clerk of the works cutting the grass, a verger setting up services and then disappearing quickly when the clergy came to say the service and then reappearing to clear away. And I personally saw the seasons of spring, summer and autumn in an empty abbey. One of my most binding memories was Easter Day in 2020. Remember, still, there was no public worship allowed. And it was decided to have the lighting of the Easter fire at 4.30 in the morning. And I, for one, was not impressed. <laughs> However, in the night of that morning, the residents came, fire was blessed, the Easter candle lit, hymns sung, incense swung, and Vidor's Toccata played on the full organ at 5.45 a.m. It was just stunning, and for me, truly refreshed my faith, hope, and love for such a place. Thanks be to God, our staff returned, albeit in a different way. Having lost colleagues in redundancies, which was very tough and very stressful. And to add to the stress, I brought my first house ever. Like the rest of the world, we came back to a different normal. Abbey staff and its future. I hope this gives you a varied insight to the life and ministry of Westminster Abbey. It seems like everything runs so smoothly, and it does. But here, I now have to be a bit honest. It doesn't always work like that. Like all institutions and workplaces, there are issues. There are clashes of personalities. Things go wrong. Diary entries are missed in the master diary. There are decisions made by those up higher up in the pay chain that perhaps could consult, especially when it affects those on the front line. And there's nothing wrong with asking from those who have years of experience in any field. One thing I have discovered in the Abbey is that everything, is, everything that is decided on and anything that we do has a knock-on effect down the line. Things go wrong, yes, and things are tense at times, yes, but believe me, we are a very happy place to be. So to conclude my contribution to the presentation, all of this cannot be done without the Abbey team. We have about 300 members of staff and 400 volunteers, and our, our staff consists of administration, musicians, gardeners, conservations, marshals, security, events team, and vergers. All totally committed, all totally understanding what and where we are. And I, for one, thank God for that, and this most amazing place called home. Our future continues. We learn, we develop, and we grow. Changes are hard at times to accept, but I ask God to enable us to be worthy of those changes.
So a little more about our future. In late 2019, before the world changed, just before the world changed, we embarked upon these extraordinary archaeological excavations on the North Green. If you know the Abbey as you're looking down from Whitehall, down towards that amazing great view right across, just on the side of the Abbey here, um, where once stood a very large 13th century sacristy, the, the, the room in the church where the vessels and vestments are prepared. Um, when that fell down, they built some Tudor houses on top, of the, on top of the ruins. They then knocked those houses down and built again. So the, you know at the beginning where I said Westminster is a tablet on which much has been written, erased, and rewritten. This is one of the great examples of that. You can see here um, some of the team of archaeologists uh, who worked to uncover the foundations of that great sacristy and indeed other medieval buildings on the green as well as um, some painted fragments of medieval stonework, um, they uncovered literally hundreds of skeletons, many of them monks, um, because the whole of that North Green was a burial site in, into the 19th century. But the monastic community, the community of which so many of those uh, bodies had been living members during their lifetime, the monastic community tended what is now believed to be the oldest continuously planted garden in England. This is College Garden, the garden at the back of the abbey over which some of the abbey residences look. Um, although you can no longer see them, it did once contain two large fish ponds which were used to feed the monastic community. They were also used to hide the body of St. Edward at the Reformation. Very unusually, in fact, uniquely in English history, the shrine of St. Edward wasn't destroyed at the Reformation by the king's men. The king's commissioners tipped the monks off that they were coming. So the monks dismantled the shrine stone by stone. They buried the masonry of the shrine in one of the fish ponds at the back, and they buried the saint's body itself in another one of the ponds. And 20 years later, when happier times came, they simply dug it all up and put it back together again. Um, so that's College Garden. And when you come to Westminster, if you haven't already, please make sure you don't miss College Garden because we're jolly proud of our wonderful gardeners uh, and they do some really wonderful work. But this rebuilding process is a big part of our future. On the site of that great sacristy, we are embarking upon a new building which will be harmonious with its surroundings, in which we'll be able to properly welcome our tourist visitors by removing the cash desks from the abbey itself, thank God at last, um, and which will also allow us finally to clear the abbey floor of hundreds and hundreds of chairs. So this will be a beautiful multi-purpose space and it will also be used for future celebratory and ceremonial occasions, probably including coronations. We also hope very much uh, that this building will bear the new king's name. That's very exciting for us. And we're soon to begin fundraising for this project on both sides of the Atlantic. But of course, development is not just about buildings. In fact, it's not even primarily about buildings. It's essentially about people. And what we think of as handing over the tradition. The Abbey has been a particularly committed custodian of the Anglican liturgical tradition since Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, and there has always been a particular focus on the choral tradition. So last year, as Martin has already said, these were long-term plans of the Dean and Chapter forged long before COVID, but because of our financial collapse and other organizational pressures, it was only last year that we finally established our girls' choir in St. Margaret's, which is our church there on the North Green, known as the Parish Church of the Palace of Westminster. This is a church under the authority and care of Westminster Abbey that has a particular responsibility for Parliament and the public square. So these girls are a very, very important step in our musical development. They sing regularly in St. Margaret's. They will also sing time to time alongside the Abbey Choir of Boys and Men. And we hope they will allow us to seize the long-term plan and prize 
of having choral worship in the Abbey precincts every single day. At the moment, Wednesday is what we call a dumb day. That's when all the services are said, not sung. But we hope that this choir will enable us to have choral worship across the precincts every single day. Why? Straightforwardly, because our worship is right at the heart of everything we do. So it has to be at the heart of our development. Everything springs from our worship, from that 7.30 in the morning, morning prayer. Everything comes from that. We're public custodians, if you like, of the traditions and the riches which belong to all Anglicans across the world, to you as much as to us. And we are privileged to be, as it were, publicly associated with some of the beauties of that tradition in a particular way. But they belong to us all. In 2012, the BBC made a really magnificent three-part documentary on the life of Westminster Abbey. And the final words of that final episode rightly went to our then dean, the great and visionary John Hall. To conclude the three hours of footage, interviews and reflection, he was filmed in his study and he simply said, you see, faith will not flee from the heart of this nation. Confident, certainly. Romantic, perhaps. But the presence of Westminster Abbey its extraordinary history, its rich daily liturgical life, its diverse and intense engagement across the public square point towards that rich hope. Faith will not flee from the heart of this nation. But we'd like, beyond anything else, to accompany everyone else, from tourists to cabinet ministers, from key workers to kings, on their journey of vocation. On Martin and my behalf, thank you very much indeed for your attention. Well done, old boy. If you did not have an opportunity um, to attend the Christian formation class that uh, Jamie Hawkey and um, retired Bishop Henry Parsley led yesterday, several of us have commented since then on words that we've walked away with. And one of the most profound in the context of teaching us a bit about the Anglican communion, why it's important, why it's there, was um, the statement, I don't want to be a Christian without you. And it echoed with me, with many of you, but also speaks, I think, to this incredible visual and spiritual bridge that we've just had described for us tonight. We at St. James are committed to strengthening that bridge and we've just taken a giant step forward in doing that tonight. And your presence with us is a gift, and we thank you for being here. As a gesture of our thanks, if you uh, are so led, there is a reception to follow in the Great Hall. If you are not familiar with the campus at St. James, simply out the transept door, sharp left, and up the cloister, there'll be people to guide you. May I thank you for being here, and would you join me, please, in thanking once again Jamie Hawkey and Martin Castledown. <laughs>